Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. Out of John 3 and John 4, two different people, Uh, you can see here on the screen how different this is, these these beautiful contrasts that John gives us as we're reading through the gospel. This is what the writers are calling us to pay attention to. In John 3, you have Nicodemus, this religious insider who is Jewish. He's powerful. He's a male, and he meets Jesus in the middle of the night. Then we have here today in John 4, this woman who is a religious outsider. She is powerless, a Samaritan, as a female too, even more powerless, and she meets Jesus in the heat of the day, in the middle of the day. We just heard this passage. We have this week what we looked at last week, the polar opposite as we know this person as the woman at the well. She is a Samaritan, so means she's a hated outsider in the Jewish faith. And she's meeting Jesus in the middle of the day. Now, if you don't have any background, you probably uh, don't understand why that means something. To early readers, they would have known that in the heat of the day, it's super hot there. So you, when you want to get water, most of the time you're going in the morning or in the evening because it's way too hot. And so if you needed water from the well, you're usually not going in the middle of the day. It's burning up. So she's coming in the middle of the day for a reason. And it's probably because the very same reason that Nicodemus comes, because she probably doesn't want to be seen. We've just heard these 14 verses today that we looked at, but the story in John 4 continues, and the next part is what we're going to focus on today, looking at verse 9 here on the screen. It says, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus, in this moment, is breaking all sorts of social conventions as he enters into this conversation. As a law-abiding Jew, it would have been very bad to interact with this unclean Samaritan, male or female. And as a man, as a Jewish man, it would not have looked good to have a conversation alone with another female. And so Jesus is entering into a very, very sort of faux pas situation. He's not living up to the religious and social expectations of the day. And she's probably worried about as he comes to her what the outcome may be. And as the story moves forward, we see why. We're picking up here where we haven't read so far in verse 15. It says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come, keep coming here to draw the water. And he told her, Going, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Recently, I heard John Cleese of Monty Python fame brag on television that he had been married for 41 years. And Eric Idle, who was also a member of Monty Python, said, yes, but that was to three different women. (laughs) We can laugh about that. And it's far easier, let's be honest, when men make those kind of comments. When women do, though, 
you don't get as much of the same reaction. You see, growing up in church, there was an implicit understanding that blame of this woman's relationship history should be placed almost entirely, if not completely, on her. As if she were the one who lived in shame. And while we don't know the whole story, we need to read through this with a very compassionate and very contextual lens. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but in that time, only a man had the power to divorce. Unless, and this was a big exception, there was another man who would advocate on her behalf. Secondly, most women in this time married at 13 or 14 years old. And so many times when there are multiple marriages, it's because the older husband with a shorter life expectancy has passed away. Again, we don't know the whole story of this woman, but here's what we do know. In the time of Jesus, for her to be in this position would have been because of her own vulnerability and powerlessness to do anything otherwise. We need to read these passages with compassionate and contextual lenses. Men in this time had every bit of the cultural and social power, and it's far more likely that as we read these words, we're seeing someone who is a victim of her circumstances, is the victim of other people's choices and not her own. And perhaps she's a victim of exploitation on behalf of the men in her life. And the reason she comes in the middle of the day to be alone is because this is the only moment she gets away from a very difficult story. That's the kind of lens we have to bring into the scriptures as we study them. And not our worst assumptions based upon our own cultural background and lens. Hopefully that changes how we understand how Jesus is bringing this up to. Jesus is making it clear for her that where she is, she is known. Her story is known. This is something we often forget. That is, as we ponder this, I hope, is a comfort and becomes a growing comfort. That is that Jesus knows our stories better than we do. Jesus knows what we are facing. Jesus knows the wounds that we're carrying into this day. Jesus understands the pains of our heart. I believe that's why Jesus is speaking these words to her in her circumstances. It's letting a woman know that in the midst of a lot of stuff she's had to go through, she is seen and she is known by God. Which is why she doesn't turn away. It's why she's not offended by what he says. Instead, she brings, she sees this opportunity as a moment to bring her questions to Jesus. Let's keep reading. It says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claimed that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. For some quick context, about 700 years before this account encounter, the Assyrian Empire comes in and, and just completely messes up Israel. They take a bunch of people into captivity, and the ones in the northern kingdom who were left behind, they begin to intermarry with the Assyrians, which under Jewish law is a big no-no. So that's where Samaritans come from. They are half Jew, half Gentile, half non-Jew, and because of that, they are 100% hated by the Jews. 
They have broken the law. In over 700 years, their own version of Judaism basically began to grow. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which was probably within view from where Jesus is talking to her in this moment. She is essentially asking, Jesus, if you're a prophet, if you know these things, who among us is getting God right? Is it my side or is it yours? I want to pay attention to what Jesus says next because this is important for where we are headed together. He says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, by modern standards, Jesus is doing something here. Let's hold on to this that we're not supposed to do. We're often told is a big no-no. Jesus is making a clear and absolute claim to truth. He's not questioning the sincerity of her worship or her values, but he does say, your worship is grounded in a God that you do not know. This is seemingly a statement of exclusivity, one that there is making clear that she's wrong about God, that she's wrong about worship, that she's wrong about how then she understands the world. And on top of this, he claims that the Jews worship what they do do know and that salvation is from the Jews. That's one of those things that you definitely have to see this in the context of the bigger story. We saw last week that one of the most powerful, one of the most devout religious people in all of Jerusalem did not get it. A person who represented the very deepest of devotion and the faith of Jewish people, and he found himself also in conversation with Jesus being wrong. And so something more is happening here. It can't simply mean when we say salvation is from the Jews that the Jews are right and that you people over there are wrong. He makes it clear there's a time coming when neither one of you are going to be in the center of gravity. When neither one of you are going to find your place right and everyone else wrong. There is a time that is coming and has already arrived when both Jews and Gentiles are called into this eternal kind of life. When both outsider and insider are going to have to unlearn and relearn everything they thought they knew about God in light of Jesus. There's a time coming and he also says, listen, there's a time that's already here. When God won't dwell on a temple, he won't dwell on a mountain, but he will dwell among his people and in his people. There's a time coming when the truth won't be contained in the rightness of how our doctrine is, but rather the truth will be someone that we know. There will be someone who knows us. You know, a lot of times in worship, one of the things we often say as Christians and don't really think about this phrase, God inhabits the praises of his people. And we use that in the context of, if you all sing louder, more of God will be here. 
Let me tell you some good news. That's taking an Old Testament verse out of context. God doesn't inhabit the praises of his people. God inhabits his people. That's better news. God inhabits people who aren't singing. God inhabits people who can barely sing and lift up a praise that morn because life is hard. It's good news that God inhabits us and not just songs that we sing. That's what Jesus is declaring to this woman. A time's coming when all of your ritual won't be where God is. A time is coming where all of their ritual won't be where God is because God will be in and among his people. That's good news. And like Nicodemus, this woman at the well, she didn't really have a category for what she was hearing from Jesus. And so John continues. He writes that the woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. In other words, the truth is the one who's looking at you in the eye. The truth that you're looking for is speaking to you in this middle of the hot day. I am he. One of the common assertions that we have among Western conversation about faith is whether or not all roads lead to God. And I'm sure as you have conversations with people at your job or with your friends, you've probably wondered that. How do I answer that question? Or maybe you share that question as well. Do all roads lead to God? I would like to present to you what I believe today. Do all roads lead to God? No. None of them do. Even the Christian ones. Because the gospel is not that a road is right and a road is wrong. The gospel is that Jesus came down to us, not that we found our way to God. And so when I say that all roads lead to God, I'm looking down at the Christian one saying, too, you're trying to get up there by that stuff. But listen, it's not about how you got the right road. It's about how God met you on the road you were already on. The gospel is that Jesus came and met us where we are. And it's why he can say, your people do it on this mountain and those people do it in the temple. But a time is coming when it won't be either one of them because I'm meeting you where you are. Truth is looking you in the eye in this moment, in the heat of the day, in your questions. Truth has just met you and his name is Jesus. That's what neither Nicodemus or this woman could not grasp. It's something that many of us still struggle to understand, and that is that salvation, when we speak of salvation, is not a path, it is a person. It is not a road that is better than one or the other. It is God himself coming and meeting us where we are as we are. And so in both this story we're looking at with Nicodemus and in this woman at the well, they are unlearning what they thought they knew about God, what they thought they knew about their neighbors, what they thought they knew about themselves, what they thought they knew about the world in light of the Jesus who stands right in front of their face and saying, as he does in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way. I am the truth 
and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus doesn't simply say, I have a way or I teach a way. He says, I am the way. Jesus doesn't simply have truth or teach truth. Jesus, the person, is truth. He doesn't say, I will give you life or I'm offering it to you. He is saying, I am the life that you are looking for standing here. Salvation, what we aspire to, what we want for every believer is a person and not a path that is one or the other. It is the God who meets us where we are. And I hope if that's new for you, it does the same thing that it does to this woman at the well and the same thing that it does to Nicodemus. And it shakes you and causes you to unlearn and relearn everything you thought you knew about God in light of the Jesus who looks you in the face and says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I've been thinking a lot about how this forms the kind of foundation for the church we want to be together. And I've shared a little bit of this before, but lots of churches and organizations, they form as a, what we'll call a bounded set church. You can see this right here, where it's very clear who's in and who's out. It's based upon the right behaviors and beliefs. And many of us have been a part of these communities. And there's good things about them. It's a sense of safety. But it can easily devolve into judgmentalism and these constantly shifting standards of who is in and who is out, right? Constantly shifting. And when this happens... What you end up being is far more focused on what you are against, on what fences you can build than what you are for. That's the problem. But many of us on the other side, we, we respond on the, the extreme and move into what we call fuzzy set communities. This is Paul Hebert. He's a missiologist, comes up with all this stuff. It's where there's no real clear boundaries or center at all. Because when you've been wounded by this bounded set judgmentalism, that kind of community, it feels like this is a better alternative. Because we don't want to risk judgment or exclusion. But in the end, it lacks any clear value to actually gather around, any defined center. And it hurts more than it helps. Surprisingly, just as many people get wounded in this kind of environment as do in the bounded set. In fact, a lot of times when you find yourself on the outside of the boundary, you start enforcing your boundary to keep the inside people outside of your outside. You become your own. Bounded set communities say that their path is the only way to God. Fuzzy set communities say, ah, any path is the only way to God. But there's a different alternative. The kind of community, the kind of church we want to be, we call centered set community. It, it, unlike these gatekeeping and judgmentalism of the bounded set, uh, and unlike the vague and lifeless passivity of this fuzzy set, there is a clear center of gravity. And that center of gravity is Jesus. And because Jesus is center, what it means to belong and believe and become is our shared direction and movement towards Jesus. Meaning the defining question for you and me, whether you have been in church for 20 years or two minutes, is are you moving towards Jesus? 
Are you becoming like him? Are you moving towards the center with your life? Meaning that you could know the Bible backwards and forwards and you have turned everything over in every activity. You have been in church every single weekend of your life. But are you moving towards Jesus? Because those things aren't always the same. I bet you've met people who've been in church every single weekend that are not moving towards Jesus, aren't they? But then on the other side, are you someone who doesn't show, at least by most standards, any sort of outward definable signs of religious devotion? And yet, are you beginning to turn and move towards Jesus? You may be way out there. Are you moving towards Jesus? Guess what? Welcome home. Welcome home. It's not whether you have done all the right things. It's not whether you have been in church or volunteer or said the right words or done the right things. It's are you, 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 me, are we moving towards the center that is Jesus? It reminds me of a story I recently heard about farmers in the Australian outback. And some of these farms are are full of these large herds of cattle. And because this land is so vast and the, the climate is often very extreme, it is far too expensive to build fences to try to keep people's individual cattle in these places. And so what the farmers had learned to do over time is instead of building fences, they built wells. They dug down deep. Because they knew that no matter how far people would wander, cattle would wander, guess what? They always come back to the source. They always come back to the spring. They always come back to the water that sustains who they are. They always, always come back to the center. I wonder what it would look like to be the kind of church who instead of builds fences, starts building wells. Instead of building the barriers, begin to dig down deep into the living water that this woman at the well was drinking that day, trusting that when people taste and see the goodness of God, they come towards the center. As we move towards our close here today, I just want to ask you where you are, where I am together we would reflect, are we moving towards Jesus as the center of our life? Have we reoriented our very existence around the one who offers this living water, around this well that does not grow dry, around this spring that we can always return to in the weariness of our souls? And so just as much as we sang and prayed earlier that God would fill us up, I want to pray something different as we move into a time of communion. I want to pray that God would make us thirsty. I want to pray that God would give us a longing for something that only he can satisfy. And as we move into this time together, I want to just invite you right now to bow your head and close your eyes. Just take a moment of reflection. We celebrate this morning in communion. 
It's the body of Christ broken for us. The blood of Christ shed for our sins. To unite us once again to the Father. To unite us to one another. And we keep coming back to this table every week because we need reminders of where our heart stands. Not just our words, not just our actions, but where is our heart? So we have elements this morning on the table in the lobby up here in the front. I encourage you to take this. Father, would you make us thirsty for the living water where we have been filled by the world, where we have been filled by religion, where we have been filled by our broken understanding of your character that has been given to us either by the world or by the church. We come to Jesus author and perfecter of our faith. The one who says in your word that what he begins, he completes. So we can have confidence even on our worst days, even in our doubts and confusion that what God began in us, he's going to finish. So we bring this to you. In Jesus' name.